admit it. You watched the Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan, didn't you? I did. And you're going to hear my take on royalty, on this royal couple, on The Dirt Show. All right, I admit it. I watched the Oprah Winfrey interview with Meghan and Harry. Yeah, my son was watching the NBA All-Star Game. My wife was watching the Oprah Winfrey interview. I had a choice. I watched a couple of minutes of the All-Star Game, but then I got taken in. I got pulled in. And I watched the whole rest of the uh, interview. And it was very interesting. Of course, Oprah is a terrific interviewer. She manages to get things from people that no one else could. Uh, I sometimes think maybe I should use her to help me in cross-examining belligerent witnesses. She'd get stuff out of them that no lawyer could ever get out of them. So she's a terrific interviewer. And I thought the interview was was quite informative. Um, But for me, it raised a profound kind of intellectual question. Why are we so obsessed with a family, with a royal family? The United States is based on meritocracy. When we won the revolution uh, against uh, Great Britain, there were those in America who wanted to make George Washington the king. He said, no, 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 we're not not having kings here. We're a republic, a republic if we can keep it. Um, In the words of uh, Benjamin Franklin, we, we were not established as a democracy. In fact, the word democracy appears numerous times during the uh, constitutional debates, almost always in a negative term. We have to protect against democracy. Look what's happening in France. Look what's happening in other places. No, no, no. We're not a democracy. We have one branch of government that is democratically elected, more or less, the House of Representatives. Of course, you have to be over 21 and white and male and property-owning to even vote for them. But the Senate, hey, they get picked by the state legislatures. The president gets picked by electors. The Supreme Court justices, the other judges get uh, appointed. No, 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 we're not a democracy. The word democracy doesn't really come into prominence until later in our history, most particularly during the reign of Andrew Jackson, who had a very strange definition of democracy. He wanted everybody to vote for everything, except he wanted to break treaties with the Native Americans and treat African Americans uh, the way we know he did. So democracy kind of like Athens democracy. You know, we love to use Athens as the place where democracy began. Of course, Athens had slaves uh, uh, that were bought and sold. Uh, Women not only couldn't vote, they couldn't even testify in in trials. Uh, You know, a democracy is what you make it. And the people who get the vote like to use the term democracy, but the people who are excluded don't. Now, Britain is a democracy. It's a vibrant democracy, um, a parliamentary system, much easier to get rid of the head of state than it is in the United States. Here we have to go through impeachment by the House, trial in the Senate, in the British Parliament, snap of the finger, one vote, no confidence, you're gone. Let's get the next guy, the next woman in here. So why are we so obsessed with royalty? Well, part of it, may be natural. I mean, even in the United States, who was our second president? I mean, after after George Washington was John Adams, and who became the president four or five times after that? His son, John Quincy Adams. So, you know, a little bit of a hereditary aspect there, but uh, John Quincy Adams was extraordinarily brilliant and very, very uh, competent uh, president. Uh, he lost, of course, uh, to Andrew Jackson, but 
he was still he was a merit election. Would he have been elected had his father not been the president? Don't know. His father was not a particularly popular uh, president. Lost overwhelmingly to uh, Jefferson. Remembering that famous election in 1800, where Jefferson and Burr running together beat Adams overwhelmingly, and then Burr decided to run against Jefferson for the electoral votes, and that resulted in the Twelfth Amendment and all kinds of changes in our Constitution. But Americans, why are we obsessed with royalty? Sure, we've had, we've had dynasties. Obviously, uh, the Bush dynasty uh, resulted in two President Bushes. We almost had a Clinton dynasty. Uh, it came very close with with Hillary uh, Clinton, and um, probably others as well. In New York, there was the Cuomo dynasty uh, under attack now. You know, being related to a prominent person in America has almost never hurt and has often helped. So we also have kind of dynastic impulses. But in Britain, you know, the whole the whole government, uh, the whole state is based on a monarch uh, who is not only the uh, head of the country, she is the defender of the faith and she must be uh, a religious person who is of a particular religion, the Anglican religion, because she is like the Pope in many respects to the Catholic Church. She in England, sure, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the functioning head of the Church, but the nominal head of the Church is the Queen of England. And so um, we do have our strongest ally in the world, England, is a, a monarchy, and 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 wh- why are we so interested in that? Why do we praise it? It certainly historically, monarchies don't produce the best leaders, and why should they? Uh, if you're picked based on who your parents are, uh, you're you're not going to be the meritocratic uh, choice. Uh, by the way, this happens in other cultures as well. Within, for example, my religion, Judaism. There are rabbinic dynasties. Uh, rabbis pass on their title. The great the Lubavitcher rabbi uh, who runs so many wonderful, wonderful operations around the world, it gets passed down. Not always to children, though. Uh, the Lubavitcher rabbi that I knew, Rabbi Schneerson, was the son-in-law of his predecessor, not the son. And, um, and of course, we find that in um, other religious traditions as well. In North Korea, of course, we have a dictatorship based on uh, dynasty. Uh, We now have the son of the previous dictator, who is the dictator, and uh, like in British um, royal history, he got rid of his brother, uh, the way princes got rid of their competitors, um, in in kingdoms over over time, and, and you know one understands the fascination of royalty, royal family, castles and palaces, and and, and all of that. But uh, it, it's just hard to understand why we're we're so obsessed with it. And it's not only that we're obsessed with it when they remain royal, but when you think of Harry and Meghan. They they strike me as relatively intelligent, thoughtful um, young uh, people, um, uh, good parents to their children. But why did they get a million dollar contract from Netflix? Uh, do they have a special talent? Are are, are they uh, uh, proven commodities that they can 
pick and choose uh, films and programs and, and why do they get Spotify millions of dollars just because they're royal, because they're royal. Uh, you know, there's a line in uh, Fiddler on the Roof uh, from Shalom Aleichem's great uh, short stories. If you're rich, they think you really know. And if you're royal, they think you really know or that you're really smart. No, no, that, that doesn't work. In fact, it's been quite the opposite. Historically, royal families have been plagued with mental illness, physical illness, hemophilia in the case of the Habsburgs. Because when you marry so closely within when you're marrying first cousins all the time and then relatives uh, in order to keep the dynasty going, obviously that has biological implications for for illness. So, you know, I wish Meghan and Harry uh, well. I, I understand uh, what the situation that led them to leave. Now, leaving and going to Canada to get obscurity is one thing. Canada is a good place to go for obscurity. Pardon all of my Canadian friends, but you know, you guys don't get the headlines. But moving to Hollywood to become obscure and to not be noticed, that gives new meaning to the term oxymoron. Hollywood not being noticed. That's a great place to hide away. And then you don't want to be noticed. You want to be ordinary people. So you go on the most popular television show in the world uh, that will be circulated throughout the world. And you bring your little son Archie on to show the world. And you bring, uh, you show the pregnancy and you tell everybody that she's going to be a daughter and when she's going to be more. It does not seem to me to be a recipe for obscurity. It seems to be a recipe for competing with the royal family. Now we have two royal families, one in Hollywood and the other in, in London. Um, and so one has to view at least some of what we saw on television with a bit of skepticism. I'm curious whether Netflix uh, promoted this uh, interview in order to promote their own uh, interests, uh, Spotify as well. I don't know the answer to this, but uh, I'm certainly not going to watch a movie because it was endorsed by Harry or, or Meghan. I'm, I wouldn't watch a movie if it was endorsed by the Queen or or by by Prince Charles. By the way, I'm told Prince Charles is a very, very bright and, and well-educated, uh, I was going to say young man, he's my age, basically, and uh, he hasn't yet been picked to be the king. Uh, one wonders if he will ever make it. Uh, his mother is sure holding on. Uh, she's in her 90s, and she has been a symbol of unity. Even in the interview yesterday, nobody said a bad word about the queen. Um, bad words about uh, Charles, not so good words about the brother, the sister-in-law, uh, the firm, the firm, that's what they call the people who operate the, the royal uh, enterprise. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a very profitable enterprise. It was shocking to me that they won't pay for security. We don't have enough money to pay for you. I think the Queen of England is among the richest people in the world. I mean, I don't think they have to sell off one of their hundreds of royal properties in order to pay for uh, security for their grandson and great-grandson, you would think a little bit of common sense and generosity would make that uh, a, a priority, but no. But the question remains, why, why are we obsessed? Two questions. Why does Britain maintain the tradition of the royal family? They're a democracy. 
Uh, a royal family is utterly inconsistent with democracy. Even if you have no important role that you give to the queen or the king, the very symbolism that you are under the sovereignty of someone who's there only because of their genes um, really does raise some fundamental questions about What's going on in the 21st century? And I don't know whether to believe this or not. Uh, it's possible it's true. It's possible it's not true. It's possible, and I think very likely, it's exaggerated. But the notion of people in the firm, uh, and they won't name who it was, being concerned about the skin tone of the young Archie before he was born and the young daughter now that she will be born, worried about the skin tone, I... Why would that be? I mean, Great Britain presided for years when it was an empire over people of every shade of skin tone, every color, every ethnicity. Uh, you would think it would be a great addition to have somebody who looked a little different than the queen and the queen's consort and and the, the prince and uh, the prince's uh, son. So there's a little bit of skepticism about how that went down. I'd love to be able to cross-examine uh, Meghan and, and Harry about the precise words, who said it, when, under what circumstances, in what context. Was it said in a negative way? Was it said in a protective way? These are issues that can be blown way, way, way out of perspective. But I get back to my main question, <laughs> why are we interested uh, why are we so focused? Uh, I have to admit, I was interested. It was a fascinating interview. I was interested because here was an American woman in her 30s, uh, previously married, not the typical uh, uh, princess who basically rebelled, revolted, and said, I want to live my own life. That's an interesting story. Obviously, then we saw indications of depression, whether the depression preexisted the marriage or not unclear, but suicidal thoughts, seeking help, seeking even residential inpatient help and being told, no, that that's inconsistent with being a, a royal. I guess the takeaway of the show and probably a very positive takeaway is, you know, I don't think little girls anymore are going to start thinking about being princesses or little boys start thinking about being princes or kings or, or queens. I mean, that Disney fantasy is over. Uh, if you're a prince today or, or a queen uh, or a king, uh, you're going to get uh, roiled by the press, uh, roiled in the second sense of that word with an I, not a Y. And, 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 and you're going to live in a fishbowl and every one of your statements is going to be second-guessed and, and criticized. It's one thing if you choose that life in America, if you run for president or run for governor, you know, you're choosing a life in politics. In Great Britain, you're born into it. And occasionally we do have somebody like Harry who seems genuinely to have second thoughts about having been born into the captivity of royalty. I thought one of the most dramatic moments was when Meghan said she didn't realize by marrying the prince, they would take away her passport, take away her keys, take away her wallet. And um, she couldn't just take an Uber, as she put it, and, and go see a psychiatrist or seek to admit herself into a psychiatric uh, facility for, for help. Um, I do think that we saw the other side of, of, of royalty. 
But I have never seen the first side of royalty. I've never seen why, why, why we are so obsessed uh, in, in, a, in an age where everything moves toward meritocracy. Well, maybe not. You know, thinking about it and talking about it, maybe it's like what we're seeing in America. In America, our own sense of royalty, our own analog to royalty is identity politics. Identity politics. It matters more who you were born to, maybe more in a negative sense, if you were born poor, if you were born to a minority person, you get elevated on the identity politics spectrum. But identity politics shares the same vice as dynastic royalty. They both violate Martin Luther King's great notion that he wanted his children judged by the quality of their character, not by the color of their skin. And to, to that, I think he would have added or by their heritage, or by who they were born to, or whether they come from a royal family or not. I remember uh, having conversations with Klaus von Bülow, my former client back in the 1980s, about why he added the von to Bülow. He was born Bülow, Klaus Bülow. His father's name was Bülow, but he insisted on the von, um, and because von is a kind of association with, with royalty. It doesn't have to be technical royalty, I know somebody else uh, who married into the Rothschild family, uh, Lynn Rothschild, and she insists on being called Lynn de, de, and then with an apostrophe, de Rothschild. Not just Rothschild, that's her name, but de Rothschild. Because that gives you a cachet of, of royalty. Um, it's, it's a strange world. The royal world is a strange world. I think part of it is... The way Americans were frightened of democracy early on in our constitutional history, I think a lot of people are frightened of meritocracy. I think a lot of people are concerned that if you allow people to rise purely on their own merit, maybe they'll need some check and balance, something to control them, and maybe the check comes from heritage and, and, and birth and privilege. You know, human beings have complex minds and uh, complex issues when it comes to who we are, where we come from. Ancestry.com has become one of the most popular uh, sites. Um, and it's fascinating to go back and see where you came from. I think many Americans, however, are very proud of their humble roots. When we hear Americans exaggerate, and I'm not going to name politicians, but you all know who they are. Politicians who have exaggerated the humility of their roots claiming they came from really humble backgrounds when, in fact, they came from middle class or upper middle class backgrounds, sometimes even privileged backgrounds. So we have a kind of reverse approach to this. But on the other hand, we obsess over royalty. So, you know, I had two choices to watch royalty from England or to watch NBA basketball royalty. Uh, and boy, there was some royalty uh, on show there as well. I did get to watch the last quarter of the NBA uh, All-Star game. Strange format now. Every quarter is different, and whoever wins each quarter gets to contribute to their favorite uh, charities. And the LeBron James team won all four quarters and was able to contribute, I think, over a million dollars to the Thurgood Marshall a scholarship a fund. So I got to see royalty from both sides. Royalty 
that involves uh, King James or Prince James, how they call him, LeBron, uh, who came from uh, poverty and worked himself up purely on the merits of his basketball skills. And the day he loses those skills, or if he were to lose those skills, he uh, would lose his his royalty. And uh, contrasting that with people who are just born to it and, and can't lose it, even if they try to, even if they want to, Harry and, and Meghan are still going to be royal in our in our minds. And so... Fascinating evening last night. Uh, welcome to the 21st century, all of the 17th century, the 16th century. Uh, welcome to our ambivalence, our confusion. Uh, and, you know, my best wishes, my best wishes to uh, Harry and Meghan. May they live uh, the lives they choose to live for themselves and for their children. May they use the royal background to their advantage if they choose to. Uh, and may they abandon their royal duties if they choose to do that. But let's make a deal. Let's move on to more important issues. Let's look at people in the world who have no choices, who have no options, people who were born to poverty, born to illness, born to circumstances where there is no way out. And let's, without saying we don't have enough compassion to go around, let's prioritize our compassion to people who really need it rather than to people who seek it uh, based on interviews like the interview we saw last night. So I'm curious what you think. A strange topic for the Dirt Show. We've never been here before and we'll probably never be here again. But I thought it was time for a break from the divisive politics of conservatism versus liberalism, Democrats versus Republicans, to an equally divisive issue, royalty versus the common person. So let's hear your views. Do you support uh, our focus, our obsession on the royal family? Or do you think we should move on? Let's hear what you have to say on The Dirt Show. I'm curious whether we'll get lots of phone calls on my take on royalty, not my typical take on current events. But today we have phone calls on the usual political issues. So let's turn to the first one. Hi, Professor Dershowitz. This is Steve in Ohio. Um, I have a question about the term migrant rights. I'm not familiar with that term until recently. And if you're not in this country already, what rights do you have to come into this country? I just don't understand how the Democrats don't want some sort of border security that uh, open borders just don't seem to make any sense to me period if you could expand on the history of this and your current opinion on migrant rights and open borders i'd appreciate it thanks great issue uh migrant rights is not a legal concept um everybody has rights there are human rights they come from the united nations declaration of rights. If you're religious, they come from the Bible, the Quran. Um, if you're philosophically minded, they come from Kant and Hegel and Bentham and Mill. Uh, you get rights. Uh, now, the United States Constitution doesn't apply to people who have no connection to the United States. Uh, a person living in Paris who's never been to the United States, who has no relatives in the United States, has no rights under the United States Constitution. But if a person seeks to come into the United States, 
once they cross the border and seek asylum, if they manage to get across the border, uh, they do have certain rights under American law. We saw that most dramatically during the Cuban situation when Cubans, brave Cubans, were trying to escape the dictatorship of Fidel uh, Castro. And they took rafts uh, from Cuba to uh, Key West. And if they managed to get one foot, one foot on the shore of the United States, suddenly rights kicked in. And they couldn't just be expelled. They had the right to go to court. They had the right to make their claim for asylum. They're statutory rights, mostly, not constitutional rights. And so uh, Congress really has the ability to make rules that govern uh, I think, for example, there's a debate about whether or not asylum seekers should have to seek asylum from outside the United States rather than inside the United States to encourage them not to cross over illegally and claim asylum, but to go to an American consulate or some American institution outside the country where they then can make their case for asylum. Once in the United States, of course, rights do attach. Uh, the Constitution doesn't only apply to American citizens, it applies to American persons. That means citizens or residents, but certain rights apply to anybody who's in the country. For example, if you're just touring uh, in the country, they still can't just arrest you without probable cause. They can't search you without a warrant or without probable cause. So we have a, a panoply of rights that increases as you move from just being in the country to being a U.S. citizen. I could do a whole seminar or course on these staircasing of rights, but I think I've made the point in general. And, of course, I'm not in favor of open borders. Uh, I don't think anybody, Democrat or Republican, um, with any common sense, is advocating open borders. I think there are differences in degree about how to deal with people who are here illegally, how long they've been here illegally, what about the children of people who are here illegally who are American citizens because they're born here. I know there are debates about what constitutes natural-born citizen, but these are all subject to reasonable debate and differences, and ultimately Congress and the court makes the decisions about this, and the president. I just read what you said about the Swalwell lawsuit and how mind-boggling it is. What I find mind-boggling is that Harvard still recognizes you as any kind of an attorney. Um, and then bringing God into it in the Bible, oh, my goodness gracious, you've got to be kidding me. You just, you know, I think God doesn't like liars. God doesn't like people following false prophets. So please, just go away, please. I, well, why are you listening to my podcast? <laughs> You're a strange person to be listening to my podcast. I have gone away. You just turn me off. Just turn off the podcast and you don't have to listen to me. I'm not standing outside your house banging a drum demanding that you uh, listen to me. Um, I was among the most popular teachers at Harvard. We get 500 applications for 15 spots in my class. So obviously people have a different view from from your view, as far as God's concerned, uh, the Constitution protects my right to deal with God in any way I choose, to believe, to disbelieve, to have doubts, to be agnostic. The Bible doesn't recognize false prophets. Uh, I don't know whether I'm sensing a little anti-Semitism in your statement uh, or not. Uh, who are the false prophets? Moses? Uh, David? 
uh, I don't know what you're referring to, false prophet. So I have no idea what you're speaking about, but you have a right to criticize me on my own show, and you also have the right not to listen to me. That's the most fundamental right of all. Turn me off. Don't listen to me. Frankly, I'm not interested in you listening to me, but if you want to listen to me, you can, and if you want to criticize me, keep calling into the show. I'll be happy to respond. Hi, Alan. This is Israel Niazov from Brooklyn, New York. I'm just wondering, can state governors find big tech in their states if they if they do any censorship like they did in Poland? Is that since big tech companies are private companies, would it be allowed for for state governors and lawmakers to find? every time big tech censors any opinions. Thank you. I think the answer to that is clearly no. Uh, big tech is private, and you can't fine a private company for exercising its own First Amendment right to decide what to put on its platform or not. Ultimately, we decide, we the people, if we don't like the way a platform is handling diversity of speech, we can turn off the platform. We can tune it out. But I don't think you can find uh, a First Amendment protected media institution. You can refuse to give it special privileges like Section 230 of the uh, statute that gives uh, immunity from lawsuits of certain kind to platforms that don't censor. That is, you can take away affirmative grants to them, but you can't publish, punish uh, or fine or tax uh, uniquely. Uh, a First Amendment uh, platform for refusing to put on the air or on its platform things it disagrees with. I have some friends who think that the the baker that did not want to create a cake for a, a wedding uh, is a terrible thing, but then they're very, very pleased with uh, YouTube deciding it does not want to show things like President Trump's CPAC speech and things that the Republicans say. And I was wondering, what, is there a huge difference between those things? Uh, it seems like they're very, very similar. Uh, they're both dealing with uh, the, the, the uh, company wanting to protect its right to do what it wants with, with the First Amendment. That's what it seems like to me. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Are they close together at all? Thank you. It's a great question, and they are very close together. There are similarities. Both are private companies. Both decide what they want to feature, what they want to do. The difference is that state law and federal law prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation. And so it's a privileged and protected class, um, whereas President Trump is not a privileged or protected class. You can take him off your YouTube without violating any federal or state law. And so the question in the bakery case is whether the First Amendment trumps over state law. State law says you can't discriminate in selling a product to somebody because they're gay, but uh, uh, they have a First Amendment right. Now, what made the case a little bit more complicated is the bakery didn't refuse to sell a cake to a gay couple. They refused to create a cake for a gay couple that celebrated their gay union. And so they claim that they had a First Amendment right not to actively participate and encourage something that their religion forbade. And the Supreme Court punted on the issue and 
basically kicked it back without making a fundamental decision on that. You know my view on that as well. Um, there's really nothing in the Bible, certainly nothing in the uh, Jewish Bible and nothing in the New Testament itself that expressly, expressly uh, deals with whether you can make a cake or provide uh, any kind of material benefit to uh, people who are gay and, and, and getting married. But the New Testament expressly prohibits uh, divorce and expressly di prohibits divorced people from getting married. And one wonders whether or not if the cake maker knew, who was a Christian, if the cake maker knew that uh, two people, male and female, looked like, you know, ordinary people wanting to get married, and they came in and said, we'd like you to make a cake for us, and, and, and we'd like the cake to indicate that we're both divorced, and we support remarriage of divorced people, so we'd like you to make a special cake that has on it a notion that here are two divorced people that are getting together, and isn't that wonderful? I wonder if the cake maker would have refused to do that, or whether the cake maker selectively picked from religious prohibitions their notion that gays can't marry, but they rejected the notion that divorced couples can't marry. The vast majority of Americans reject that notion. Even the vast majority of Catholics reject the notion that divorce is prohibited. It's a doctrine and a tenet of the church, but it's not a tenet that is practiced uh, in, in reality by many Christians and even by uh, the vast majority of, of Catholics. So um, one can ask about consistency, hypocrisy, but in the end, it's a very close question. It's a very difficult question about whether or not religious freedom uh, give you a hard case. Uh, obviously, state statute uh, prohibits you from refusing to rent to somebody because they're African-American or because they're Jewish or because they're Muslim. That's prohibited by law. What if a person came in and said, my imam, my rabbi, my priest, my minister has told me that religiously I'm not allowed to rent to a black person or a Jewish person? Um, would that prevail over the uniform rule that says you must rent to anybody regardless of religion, race, sexual orientation? Um, the Supreme Court generally has ruled that if you have a neutral law that doesn't single out religion that applies across the board, you can't get out of that law if you have a religious objection to it unless Congress gives you an out like they do with conscientious objectors in the Army and some other uh, areas of law. It's a complex question. Again, I could teach a whole seminar on the relationship between civil rights laws and religious freedom, but it's a great question. Hi, Gordon Showitz. My name is Flor Benesayang, calling from Rockville, Maryland. And I want to know your opinion on why the judges and the Supreme Court didn't want to see the proofs of voter fraud. Thank you. It's a good question, and I have publicly stated I wish they had taken the case, particularly the Texas case and the Pennsylvania case. Pennsylvania case was the strongest. Texas, don't know whether or not there was enough evidence there, but I think they made a mistake by saying that Texas didn't have standing to raise the issue. I wish the court had taken the case and um, looked hard at the evidence. Uh, my own view is that there is not sufficient evidence to support a claim that the election was stolen or fraudulent, 
there were some issues, constitutional issues in Pennsylvania, factual issues in some other places, but I haven't seen the evidence that to me would be convincing that the results would be changed if uh, any of these issues were looked at uh, more closely. So I wish the court had done it, but I don't think it would have changed anything. Hi, uh, Attorney Dershowitz. Well, cancel culture struck again, and it's aiming at Hollywood. TCM, the old movies such as Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, My Fair Lady, Psycho, uh, all under attack again. They have to be re-examined, just like Gone with the Wind, with uh, some some kind of narrative to help us understand the movie. So, what's your take on mm. it? Uh, and when is this going to end? How can we end it? What should we do? I like to know. Thank you. It's a great question. I think these attempts to filter out movies that don't reflect current views is so insulting to the intelligence of the average viewer. We're smart enough to watch Gone with the Wind and see that we're watching something that reflects a different age, a different time, a different set of values. <clears throat> Virtually every old film reflects different sets of, of values and uh, let them show them, uh, you know, if they want to insult our intelligence by having a little statement saying these films do not reflect our current views. I don't think we need that. We're smart enough to understand that. We don't watch films and adopt everything that's uh, in them. Um, you know, some great films uh, have had elements in them which are utterly un unacceptable to most people today, but... You know, we live in a free society, and in a free society, we get to choose. That's what the marketplace of ideas is all about. And nobody should put the heavy thumb of censorship or of cancel culture on the open marketplace scale. We can make our own evaluations and our own uh, judgments. So I don't agree with those uh, television stations or platforms or anybody else that tells us that we can't watch something because some people might be offended by it. Again, the most fundamental American right is the right to turn off the TV, turn off the radio, turn off your iPhone, change the channel, don't listen. The caller earlier on who said she can't stand listening to me, hey, that's her right. Why she called in, I have no idea, but that's her right, and she has a right to call in too. And I have the right not to put her on my show, but I chose to exercise the right to put her on the show and let her say what she wants about me. And that's my invitation to all of you. Say whatever you want about me. You get on the show. You get to have your voice heard, and I get to have my response. That's what The Durst Show is all about. So please tell your friends, subscribe to The Durst Show, and keep listening and keep watching and keep sending in great questions. An important part of The Durst Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, 
everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.